It isn't good enough simply use data analytics to make great reports. You need to make it so it makes great experiences. Consumers more and more are picking and choosing who they want to work with. And while we don't have pure attrition, what we have is a diversification of the relationship and a complete drop in loyalty. Hello and welcome to VNext Remix by Veritrend. This is your podcast to understand how digital technologies are disrupting traditional finance as we know it. I'm your host, Katie Janos-Small, the CEO and founder of Upana. And in each episode, I speak to leaders at the front lines of digital transformation to help you understand what's ahead. Today, I'm delighted to welcome the legendary Jim Maroos to the show. Jim is a lifelong banker. He started as a management trainee in the banking industry, moved to a series of marketing positions in the banking industry, and has since become a content creator covering and discussing the banking ecosystem. Jim is the co-publisher of The Financial Brand. He's the owner and CEO of The Digital Banking Report, and he's the host of the top retail banking podcast, Banking Transformed. Jim, you will have seen him quoted in all of the top business and news publications. He speaks globally. He's advised financial institutions. He's even advised the White House on changes in the banking industry. So Jim, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to VNext Remix. It's great to be here, Katie. Thank you so much for the invite. Jim, the, in, the, the economy is looking like it's set for some difficult times ahead. So what does this mean for digital banking, for technology projects at banks? Does it make them maybe less important, more important? You know what? It's very interesting. I've been very fortunate um, to not only meet in person with a lot of uh, fintech firms and banks and solution providers, but also with bankers um, and the individuals that make these things work. And I, I think there's some real major trends that we're starting to see. Number one um, and most important is I think a lot of organizations are, are considering or at least uh, toying with the idea of scaling back their investment. It's the normal reaction that the banking industry has always had that during times of risk and change, they will tail back their, their ambitions and may not do as much. It is my belief, and I am a pragmatist as opposed to a futurist or an aggressive banker by any means, that this is the worst time to tail back your investments. You may have to reprioritize, but the last thing you can afford to do is to reduce your investments because it's not like the marketplace is changing at the pace it used to change. It is changing faster today than ever before, and it will never change as fast again. So if you take a rest or don't decide to invest in technology, in human resources, in innovation, in data and analytics, or any of the elements of digital transformation, if you don't invest in those, you fall farther behind. And your competitors and your next door neighbor financial institutions who may not hesitate in investing will, will move ahead. And the catching up is not possible anymore. And one of the one of the really interesting things that I've seen as I've met with bankers, individual bankers, I asked them, I've asked over 200 individuals one-on-one, -on -one, what is your biggest challenge today? 
And they say invariably, it is, it's almost as if they're talking to each other. It's getting today's work done. And I said, what do you mean? You're standing still? No, no, we're just trying to keep up. And when we talk about keeping up the industry or moving ahead or trying to catch up from the lack of speed we've had in the past, we can't afford to hesitate. So it reinforces my belief that even during times of economic downturn, economic risk, it is more important than ever to invest in the technology, to invest in the people, to invest in the solutions. And as I said, that's where the big asterisk where you may decide that what I have to do is I have to prioritize differently. And one thing that I, I just wrote an article a week ago for the financial brand that was entitled, why banks aren't buying what tech providers are selling. And that whole concept that article was about the fact that tech providers are continuing to sell the vision, the big picture, the things they can do if you buy everything they've got. Well, the reality of today is I don't have the energy or the resources to buy that. What I need is I need solution providers to provide me individual solutions that will move me ahead in certain categories where I have a greatest need at speed and at a scalability that can make it so I can deploy it very easily and, very big and, generate revenue in the shortest amount of time. So in other words, the lowest hanging fruit. Right. So absolutely, the the pace of change is, is incredible at the moment. So when banks are thinking about how to prioritize, you say that they should be looking at those solutions Simple, fairly direct solutions that are going to have direct revenue impacts, right? Yeah, and, and, and more than ever, the way to do that is not building it within, but to actually partner with those solution providers that provide those solutions or maybe partnering with the fintech firms that right now, in many cases, aren't getting the funding they're used to have gotten. And they could be really, really good partners to bring some very digital advanced solutions to the forefront and be able to deploy them quickly. But, you know, a warning to bankers to do that. Number one, you have to embrace the change and say, we want to do this. And number two, you also have to stay out of the way. Um, The challenge is a lot of the things that are being sold mean actually doing things very differently than we've done in the past. And while financial institutions have been profitable and, and been making great money for the last 20 years and more, to take on that new vision, to embrace the change, to take risks and to disrupt your organization at a time when all things seem to be going okay, means that you'll have to do something differently. And that is the biggest challenge we see in the marketplace right now. Absolutely. And I think that it it comes back to that kind of uncertainty or that fear of doing making a bold move that's a wrong move right so i think that your, your point about going for concrete and and, and um, maybe partnerships as well as a as a really good um a really good comment if we think about and you mentioned you know the pace of change and how fast it's changing if you think about how consumers are using digital finance what's what does your crystal ball tell you you know how, how do you expect this to evolve in the in the coming years Well, you know, I've said this before, and there's a big warning out there. What's happened with digital is it's now easier than ever to engage with a new financial partner. In many cases, let's say Apple Card, it takes four screens to get an Apple Card. The first one says, here's what we know about you. The second one says, 
give me the last four digits of your government ID number. The next one says, tell me how much money you make each year, and then read these rules and regs. You push the next button, and you're probably amazed as the user goes, wait, I got it? I've already gotten it? That's all you want to know? And, oh, by the way, the first thing they tell you is it's already within your Apple Pay app. So immediate, the speed of this. What's interesting about that, the fact that consumers now more than ever can engage digitally to open new accounts with providers that they think provide them the advantage in the marketplace, new ideas, better personalization, ease of use, is that financial institutions, traditional financial institutions today, still determine whether or not they're doing well by attrition rates. The challenge in today's marketplace is that the attrition rates are still extraordinarily low. Why? It's hard to close an account. When I've done speaking engagements in front of 200, 500 people, I ask how many of you have closed a major financial institution relationship in the last five years? Almost nobody raised their hand. I then say, how many of you have opened a new financial relationship ranging from credit cards to wealth management to a new savings tool to a new checking account in the last two years? Two-thirds to three-quarters of the audience will raise their hand. What that means is that the biggest change in digital interactions is that consumers can quickly diversify their relationships in the banking ecosystem without closing their legacy relationships. So for me, on the business side, I have a very strong PayPal relationship. I get the money in through PayPal for my digital bank report. I pay it out to my contractors using PayPal. However, my traditional financial institution still has a lot of my funds until I transfer them. What is interesting, they don't know they've lost the relationship. They haven't lost the account. They haven't lost the transactions. But what position this puts PayPal in? They know everything about my relationship. They know everything about my business. They offer me, on a pre-approved basis, lines of credit for my business. If I wanted to get the same line of credit from my traditional financial institution, I'd have to go in. I'd have to apply. Even They don't not have small business lending capabilities digitally. I would then have to wait for the approval process without a guarantee I'm going to get approved and then wait for disbursement. By the time that all happens, I may be in and out of my PayPal relationship. So the biggest change we've seen and the biggest change we're going to continue to see is that consumers are building their own open banking relationships. They're picking and choosing who they want to work with throughout the entire banking ecosystem. I use Acorns for savings. I use Robinhood for investments. I use PayPal, as I mentioned. I use Ally for my car loan. I use a credit union for my mortgage relationship. All these relationships can be found through the digital ecosystem. Every financial institution could find out what's going on. In fact, for the last 10 years, I've been transferring money from my business relationship to my consumer relationship by writing a check, taking a picture, and depositing it because the two banks don't talk well. <laughs> but what's interesting Sad is that's all, traceable. it's <laughs> all traceable, and yet neither firm has said, oh, by the way, we'd like to do business with you. Worse yet is my traditional consumer bank reaches out to me and says, what balance level would you like us to warn you that your balances are low? I've had a relationship for that, with them for 17 years. 
you should know what my balance needs to be on the 1st, the 3rd, the 5th, the 14th, the 28th, and 30th. It's not the same balance. You should know me better than what I know myself. And so the biggest transformation in the overall banking um, ecosystem is that consumers now know it's possible. They know the power of data to predetermine how you can help me reach my financial goals. The challenge is they're not doing it. And so what's happening is consumers more and more are picking and choosing who they want to work with. And while we don't have pure attrition, what we have is a diversification of the relationship and a complete drop in loyalty. I think that's a really uh, interesting characterization that you make, Jim, because you're right. It's impossible to close a bank account, but it's pretty easy to open a new one. And 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 that chips away at the relationship and the um, the loyalty that consumers have with their traditional institutions. So, so then, what what should the traditional banks be doing about this? What is the solution to maintaining that loyalty and maintaining that that more personal connection with their users? You know, that's a great question, Katie. You know, overall, it's it's easy to say use data and analytics to determine where the opportunities are because that that really is going to guide everything. But it's bigger than that. I think if I went to my consumer bank, which is a top five bank, and said, tell me everything you know about me, they would know what my balance has to be every month at different days. They would know the other relationships I have with other financial institutions. They would know what my monthly payment is, my interest rate is for my car loan and for my home loan. They would know that I have a business banking account with another financial institution. The problem is most financial institutions are not democratizing the data and analytics across the organization to take action so that I know my financial institution knows me. Now, I I use the term, it isn't good enough simply use data and analytics to make great reports. You need to make it so it makes great experiences. And more importantly, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, is that it's even more important to build engagement. You look at what PayPal is doing. They talk over and over again about the way they're expanding what they can do, not so they can dig deeper into the financial background of myself, but to build better engagement. They want you to go on your phone and tap the PayPal app every day. If we're doing what we need to do, we should be able to help our consumers make their financial wellness, their financial future better by helping them reach their destination, avoiding the detours, avoiding the pitfalls, and taking the quickest route. I I call it the GPS of financial services. And the reason why that's important is because Consumers now, I mean, you probably have Netflix or Hulu or some other streaming service. How much different is that than DirecTV? DirecTV, I have to pick out what I want to record each week. And and trying to find a show I missed is not the easiest process. My other house, I, I have Hulu. And it continually updates their thought processes to what I want to watch at what time of the day on what day of the week. They know at 6 o'clock when I turn on the TV, the first thing I want to see is, news and they have the stations that I watch in order. So they say, okay, I think this is one you want to watch. On the other hand, I laugh about this. They also know that I got really into how to build pools. Now I'm not building a pool. It just was an interesting show in a relaxing state. And so all of a sudden I'm getting all these different pool building shows. And I watched most of them. It, it's, 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 you know, it's candy to the brain, but the reality is 
when this happens, when your Instacart relationship knows how you want your vegetables, how ripe you want them to be, they know the brands you buy, and they don't have to ask you that question anymore, you've made my life easier. That's how things are changing. I find your point about the engagement quite interesting because, you know, how you mentioned that PayPal wants you to tap on the app every single day. Really? Because a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, I guess a lot of the talk that we hear in the market these days is that financial services enable people to live their lives, right? You don't think about how am I going to pay for X? You just want it to happen. You get out of the Uber and, it, and, it's, and it's paid for. So I guess there's an interesting concept there between how engaging should a bank bank's digital experience be versus how seamless and to a certain extent i mean it's great great distinction and i'm glad you caught me in that because they don't want you to go to paypal for a transaction they want paypal to come to me with a reason to use paypal so they may notify me by the way your investment portfolio has changed and you may want to transfer money between point a and point b you may get something from Acorns, in my case, where I use it as a savings tool, where they say, by the way, you may want to recalibrate what you're doing on the investment side. So if you give me a reason to use you, most of it being embedded. So I was using it from your point of view more tactily than actually embedding the process. I, I don't want to think about it. So to your point, you're exactly right. I, I, I stand correct in the way I described it because Acorns, for instance, I don't go to it very often. I know that every day they're taking money out based on roll-ups, um, roll I think they're called, based on transfers because of balance levels being higher. They're thinking on my behalf, and I've never had a savings account bigger than I have with Acorns now in my life. And it's been painless because they were determining when I, I should have transfers, and I just kept that, that, that funding going as they would do it. So I think what, what we're really talking about is rather than just great experiences, what financial institutions have to look for is how can I make it so the engagement is more personalized? How can I give you tools to become a better financial steward? Or even more importantly, how can I make it easier for me to be a financial steward because my bank thinking on my behalf? Right. Got it. Interesting. That's the client perspective. If we're thinking about from the side of the banks and some of the trends that you see the banks, the way banks are, are moving What's one of the big shifts that you see is really important at the moment in the banking transformation space? Um, it, it is interesting. We focus a lot on technology and we focus a lot on investing in technology. I have found that no investment in technology will offset legacy leadership. The biggest difference between winners and losers in the banking industry today is how willing an organization and people are to embrace change, take modified risk, and disrupt their organizations. Anybody who's listened to me for a while knows they're my, they're my three mantras. Embrace change, take risk, and disrupt yourself. And I believe that's, that's very important both from a personal and a professional basis and from an organizational basis. There are still a majority of financial institutions that have leadership that's been in place for at least 30 years. They're a group of mostly men, mostly white men, that have moved up the organization in sync with each other and been patting each other on the back and succeeding together. They have not had a bad year. They have not had a downtime. As a result, however, you get somewhat complacent. You don't have the challenger mindset that's necessary 
to prepare your organization for what the future will be. I use the analogy of going to the doctor and saying, you know, if the doctor says, you know, you got to change your eating habits, got to get more activity. You go, geez, I'm going to do that. I'm gonna, and you do it for about a month. But it's not a behavior change. But then two years from now, after the doctor saying it for every six months, when you go for a checkup, he gives you some bad news. It's amazing how that change can happen when there's bad news right in front of you. But, you know, I talked to you before we had the podcast started that said, you know, it's interesting how fintech firms and traditional banks are so different in the way they view the marketplace. There's a challenger mindset among most fintechs that says, I want to move to the next level. I want to provide the next digital solution that the consumer is going to want to buy. I'm not worried about risk and I have a really low cost of entry. Traditional financial institutions go, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And there are organizations that stand out, some of the small organizations, obviously some of the larger ones. It doesn't take an investment to be successful. It takes leadership that's willing to do things differently that's going to take to be successful. I think, I think that's the biggest change. In addition, I think organizations in a legacy mindset have back offices that are based on non-digital environments, and they try to digitize legacy processes. And the other thing that's a challenge is you find a lot of financial institutions that really look for that big innovation. Um, a, a very major financial institution announced about four months ago that at the end of this year, they're going to come out with a brand new digital banking platform that they've been working on for six to eight months. My challenge is if you've been working on it for six to eight months, at least six of those months are already outdated, not as, not as up to date as it could be. And why are you introducing something before you even can introduce it to tell me something that I can't see yet? The reality is what we have to change is the view of innovation is that next big silver bullet, that, that, that thing you reach for. Iterative innovation is more important, changing over time to make things better. I just had an interview, as you know, with Henry Ma from WeBank. And one of the best insights that he said is we go from ideation to implementation on new innovations in 10 days. Now, I saw him two years ago in person in China. It was 14 days. They make they have four parallel, parallel cloud platforms. Two of them are for their customer base. Two of them are for testing modules. And they will continually introduce new things. Oh, by the way, if something doesn't work, they'll take it away from the consumer and explain why they took it away. That it didn't work the way they thought it would or they wasn't accepted the way they thought it would. But doing that makes it so that you're never that far behind. And, and oh, by the way, two-thirds of their staff are engineers or in the R&D space. It's a little different than legacy bankers. And they serve 300 million customers with 3,000 employees. That's going to be hard to compete against when you're, when you're, if you had branches and everything else you had to do. But I think the whole idea of iterative innovation is a major one we have to think about. Absolutely. And it builds on that idea in the fintech world of, of starting with an MVP and, and going from there. It's that same concept, right, of just yep. getting something out there, see how people react to it and, and, and building on that or, or taking a step back. As you mentioned with WeBank, I think that's a really cool um, insight as well, that if something's not working, just just walk away from it and try something else. Right? Exactly. We, we, we are so fearful of failure. And what's interesting, we have some great financial institutions that are not fearful of failure. I, I just had a, an interview with Capital One and their, their innovation team really says, you know what, we're not afraid to walk away from things. But the reason why, 
leadership says, we want you to move forward, but we're not going to slap you on the wrist if you make a mistake. That is a mentality. That's a leadership issue. And as I said at the very beginning of this, this answer is that it's not the technology, it's the leadership and people and culture that's going to make the difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jim, it's time for us to move to the lightning round of quick questions. Are you ready? I'll, I'll try to make them quick, quick, quick. <laughs> Which book are you reading right now? I'm reading a book um, by Jim Beeson called The New Goliaths. And it's an interesting book. I, I read about it through the MIT technology uh, portal that said he wrote about the fact that big organizations, more and more consolidation to the biggest end, and that is stifling innovation because they can take technology, they can invest in technology, they can take over innovation firms before they really get their legs. And as a result, brand new innovations don't have enough scale to compete. And if they get enough scale, the big firms are gonna take them over and stifle some of that innovation. It's a really interesting book, something that's way out there. And, and you know, I think it's it's one of those things you go, geez, I think I've seen that happen in the banking industry. Hmm, I'll, uh, I'll look it up, it sounds great. Jim, what's the best piece of professional advice that you've been given? Um, it's personal and professional. Um, never stop learning. I think when you stop searching to learn new things, if you ever are afraid of change, in my perception, is you become a lot less valuable in the overall world. You know, it was interesting because COVID really gave people a chance to reach out and do something different. To those people that did, I'm sure they look back and go, God, that was a great opportunity. I'm sure there's many that look back and go, geez, in looking back, I wish I had done something different. I think the ability to continue to learn and search the learning, don't just take the, the front service. And I, I talk about being in the US where you can't trust any mass media sense without you know, taking both sides of the equation. But I, I invariably, um, if I watch any TV, I end up watching all the networks because I want the perception from different areas and then I can make my own decisions. Triangulate between them all. I think that's a great strategy. Oh gosh, yes. What's the app that you use most? Social media. And I'm gonna take that as a, as a group and it's not really an app, but because of my content creation, it's very important to be able to get it out there. And I use LinkedIn, I use Twitter, I use Instagram. I'm not a TikTok guy, as you can probably imagine, but I'm continually looking and seeing how can, we, how can I distribute content more efficiently and more effectively. Which one do you prefer at the moment? LinkedIn. Um, Twitter has become too too quick and, and it, it, it still is, it's still a base, but it's an instant. LinkedIn, you can build some engagement and Instagram to a degree, but it's not a real business platform. We're, we're having great experience with LinkedIn right now. Awesome. Jim, when will we stop using cash? Not in my lifetime. I, I think um, there will still be uses for cash. There'll be still people that want to use and are required to use cash just because we aren't doing really well making a banking a universal platform. Um, however, uh, I can use the example in 2019, I went to Rome for uh, five days and only used my, my phone to make payments. Now, I had to search out those opportunities, but, but overall, I did not use plastic, I did not use cash the entire, I'm sorry, I used cash once. I decided I had to tip the uh, the gentleman that helped me with my bags and got me in the hotel, but it's the only time I use cash. 
Oh, I was gonna, I was gonna congratulate you for not coming home with a with a whole pile of euros that you don't quite oh, know what to do. Oh, with, I didn't, but... I didn't, I didn't come home with any euros. In fact, trying to get the cash to pay the gentleman uh, was was the biggest challenge. I, I swore I was not because you end up, I end up using them in the airports. I'm leaving the country. I never bring mm. any home. I end up going. What do I not need that I have cash for? <laughs> Finally, Jim, who else do you recommend that we invite onto this show? You know, they're, they're both great friends of mine. You've already had Chris, Chris Skinner on the show. I would probably recommend both Brett King and Ron Shevlin. Brett, Brett is more of a futurist. He, he has been in the industry for quite some time. He's really well known in the space and really has a, a really good grasp on, on what's going on in the future. Ron Shevlin comes from an advisory firm, Cornerstone Advisors, and he has a really good pragmatic look at what's really happening. It's, it's, I go to him often and say, okay, I, I need my feet back on the ground. What, what's actually happening with the smaller and mid-sized financial institutions? Mm, wonderful, wonderful recommendations. Thank you very much. Uh, and Jim, thank you so much for your time. I feel like this conversation has been far too short than what it deserves, but um, I appreciate you, you, you taking the time and um, really, really great to, to get your, your, your thoughts and your perspectives in the, in the short time that we have. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to doing it again. And also I'm certainly looking forward to get back down into the, the South American countries that I, I visited quite often before COVID and, and looking forward to seeing all my Latin American friends. Wonderful. And thank you for tuning in for this new series of VNext Remix. Be sure to follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and turn on notifications to be the first to hear the next episode. We'll be back soon with more VNext Remix insights.